Good morning, everyone. Good to see all of you here with us this morning, especially those of you who are visiting with us. Listen, if you're visiting with us and this is the first time that you've been to a, a Church of Christ and you have any questions about anything that you have seen or, or heard, maybe the way we sing our songs or the time that we spent around the Lord's table, whatever might be on your mind, certainly feel free to talk to us about it. Certainly feel free to talk to me about it and I'll try to give you an answer. And if I can't, maybe I can find someone who can give you an answer or, or maybe we can sit down together and study out the, the topic itself. Anyway, we're glad that you are here, as was mentioned by... Uh, um, Art, uh, we have a, a, a guest speaker this evening, uh, which is uh, Ezekiel uh, Barnes, at, and his wife Julia are here with us, of course, and he's going to be speaking this evening. So let me encourage you to be back here to hear this young man uh, speak uh, to us. He's really excited about going to school and uh, getting into the ministry, and we want to encourage him in every way that is possible. I think it's really going to be a good thing. Also, let me remind you that after our services today is our potluck, and we're going to be honoring uh, James. Uh, James Martin, he's turning 100 years old, and that's a long time, and so we want to honor him and uh, celebrate that uh, with him. What a great uh, mile mark for, for him. So in our quest to know more about Jesus, we want to know about him not you know, in a very superficial way, but we want to intimately come to a, a greater knowledge of who he is, not about him, but who he, he really is. And part of knowing who Jesus is is knowing him as our great high priest, there's an incredible passage of scripture that Tyler read to us just a few moments ago out of the book of Hebrews, the fourth chapter. And in verse 14, it says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus Christ, the Son of, of God. That's an incredible thought when you think about it. And so this morning, I'm going to be talking to you about Jesus Christ as the great high priest. But before I get there, let me kind of set up a little bit of what I'm talking about. You know, if you've ever been a person who have been to a ball game, and if you sit behind the home plate of the ball game, you no doubt have uh, heard the umpire when he says something like, Strike three, you're out. And that guy is sent to the dugout. And so this guy who's in this padded black uniform has a tremendous amount of authority. When I was a youth and when I was a younger man and, and playing baseball, I was always amazed at the authority of an umpire. The umpire has all of the authority. He's probably one of the most important people that's on the field. It's not the catcher. It's not the pitcher. It's not the batter. It's not even the coach himself. It is the umpire. He is the ultimate arbiter. He is the ultimate umpire, the ultimate authority that is on the field. Maybe you heard the story about a ball game that happened where they're in the latter part of the ninth inning. Uh, it was a super close game. The, uh, the batter is up to the plate. He has a high count against him with two strikes already called on him. And the pitcher, he delivers the pitch. The ball is outside the strike zone. And the umpire says, strike three. And the guy was out. Well, listen, everybody in the world knew that that ball was not across the plate. And the batter, he knows that this is an important a bat that he is up, up there with. And he is left with a thing on his shoulder. And he is furious about it. And he gets into a huge argument with the umpire. And as he's arguing with the umpire, he's right at the point where he's escalated to the point that the, the umpire is getting ready to kick him out of the ball game. The coach rushes out of the, the dugout and goes up to the umpire and he begins to have a vigorous conversation with him. He says, Charlie, that ball was not a strike. Everybody in the world knows that it was out of the strike zone. The whole stadium knows it was out of the strike zone. The dugout knows it was out of the strike zone. I know it's out of the strike zone. The pitcher knows it's out of the strike zone. So does the catcher. And everyone on TV knows that that ball was not across the plate. It was a ball. And Charlie says, he says, well, that may well be. 
But today it's a strike. Tomorrow it might be a ball. A week from now it might be a ball. A month from now it might be a ball. But today it's a strike. The batter is out. He has all the authority on the ball diamond. By the way, I don't know if you know this or not, but statistically, Major League Baseball umpires behind the plate miss 20% of the calls. That means one out of every five balls that crosses the plate, they miss. They don't get right. I think there was like two ML, MLB um, umpires who have like a 94% accuracy. So you want that guy behind the plate, which says what? Well, what it says to you is that umpires are not perfect, but it doesn't matter. They are still the authority on the ball diamond. As long as the game is being played, they call the strikes, they call the balls, they call the outs, they call the saves. They have all of that, that power. They have the power to send a man either to first base or to the dugout. They have the power when a person slides into the plate, they can call him out or you can call him safe. He can kick a, a coach out of the ball game if he's kicking dirt on him and saying foul language to him. He can just send him out of the ball park. He can call a game. If the weather is bad, he has a lot of authority. Keep that thought in your mind as we talk about umpires a little bit. Now, let's go way back to the ancient patriarch whose book is named after him by the name of Job. Job in, in uh, Job, the ninth chapter, verses 32 through 33, he is lamenting how life is going against him. Uh, things are going bad for him. Marauders have killed his children. Uh, they have stolen his flocks and his herds. They have burned down a property. Not only that, but he physically is completely in a really bad uh, health situation. It's so bad that he finds himself on the top of a dung heap. And he is scratching his sores with broken uh, pottery. He has sores from the top of his head to the soles of his feet. He is in bad shape. He is running fevers. He's got boils all over him. Bad shape. Not only that, not only has he not lost his wife, he has a wife who's telling him, listen, you need to curse God and, and die. So things are going hard against him. And what he says here in this passage of scripture that we're going to look at just very briefly, he says this about an arbiter. He says, for he is not a man. He's talking about God here. For he is not a man as I am, that I might answer him that we should come to trial together. There is no arbiter between us who might lay his hand on us both. An arbiter, an umpire, an intercessor. He says, we don't have that. He, he, that's something that he desires. That's what all of us desire. You see, his friends had become to Job and they were saying to Job, the reason why you've lost your family, the reason why you have lost your wealth and your health and everything else is because there is some kind of secret sin is, that is going on in your life that only you and God know about. And because of that, God is punishing you. And Job is saying to his friends, that's not so. He holds to the fact that he is innocent. He's not saying that he's not a sinless, or a sinless man. He simply says that I have not so done something in, in my life that warrants this kind of calamity coming upon my life. And so he thinks now that maybe this is between he and God. That God is afflicting him. He doesn't know behind the scenes of the book of Job, of, of Satan and all those things that are going on there. All he knows is what's going on in his life right now. And he says, I wish there was an arbiter between God, who seems to have all the power, and me, a human being. So he answers or asks the same question that all of us ask when we look at our lives, when we're going through various kinds of, of struggles, when we're having various kinds of suffering and, and heartaches, when obstacles are uh, all about us, when life is hard on us, we want something, someone to arbitrate, to come before us, to intercede on our 
uh, behalf. That's what we desire more than anything in the world. Well, in the book of Hebrews, a letter that is written to Christians who once were Jews, who have come out of Judaism and into Christianity, they have a lot of questions about things. And one of the questions that they have to do with is that, was Judaism greater than Christianity? The book of Hebrews is all about the greatness of Jesus Christ. In fact, if you were to take one word to maybe set the theme for the book of Hebrews, it would be the word greater. Because he's greater in all aspects. So beginning in Hebrews, the fourth chapter, going through Hebrews, the 10th chapter, you're going to be introduced to this incredible Jesus that we know of as the high priest. In fact, over and over again from chapter 4 to the chapter 10, you'll see the word priest or high priest or great high priest used over 30 times in that section of Scripture, which tells you that that really is a main part of what this book really is about, that Jesus is, is greater. So in the book, one comparison after another is going to show the superiority or the greatness or the better of Jesus as opposed to other things. For instance, in chapter 1, he's going to say, the writers will say that Jesus is greater than the angels. Chapter 2, Jesus is greater than any man that has ever walked on the planet. And then in chapter 3, he's going to show that Jesus is greater than the greatest of lawgivers, the one who received the law on Mount Sinai. Moses himself, he's going to say, listen, Jesus is greater even than Moses. And his promise is even greater than the promised land that was given to the children of Israel. Because his rest has to do with rest for the soul. His rest has to do with eternity in heaven with, with God. And so we see Jesus as the greatest of all greats. And one of them is, is that he is the great high priest. So Tyler read to us from, from Hebrews, the fourth chapter in verse 14, so where it says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, there you see something that is incredible. Okay, so let's pause here for just a moment. And let's think about this word priest. So when you picture the word priest or priest, what kind of visuals do come to your mind? I mean, what is it that you, you picture? Maybe you picture a certain kind of clothing. Or maybe you've heard the words, you know, that, you know, the clothing makes a man. So when you think of different kinds of, of jobs or services of people and how they dress, we generally have a picture in our mind about what we think they should be dressed like or look like. For instance, a police officer, you think about well, a policeman's uniform, or say you're thinking about a firefighter, or maybe you're thinking about a soldier who wears the U.S. uniform, or maybe you're thinking about a ball player. Maybe he's a football player or a baseball player or a basketball player. They also have that, a certain kind of, of look that you expect them to have. If your mind goes more towards a religious kind of venue, then you might think of, say, a person who might call himself a priest in the Catholic Church or in the Greek Orthodox Church, or maybe just a person who has a white collar. So you might think of being a priest as one who has long flowing robes or maybe has ornaments on their, their bodies, or maybe they have a stiff uh, uh, black suit with a white collar and things like that. Maybe that's what your visual of a priest is. But let me tell you, in Hebrews, the fourth chapter, in verse 14, when the writer says, since therefore we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, they wouldn't have thought of any of the pictures that I just showed you. 
their minds would have automatically, almost, almost for sure, went back to the Old Testament high priest. And they would have seen the picture of a person that was dressed in a, a white uh, robed linen. They would have thought about a person who has a blue effort that would go over the white linen, a beautiful blue, if you will. Not only that, they would have one that has a multicolored ephod uh, uh, as well over the blue robe itself. And on, the, on all three, there would be a gold breastplate that was there, or a plate, and on it would be 12 precious stones that are very representative. He would have a, a kind of like a turban top on, on top or cap. You would notice that he would not have any sandals or shoes on his feet, but that he would be barefooted. He would have a tremendous amount of authority. He would be an arbiter. He would be an umpire for the Jewish people. And he would have responsibilities and privileges that we can't even, even imagine. I guess we could imagine, but it would be hard for us to get our minds completely around it unless you had been there to see all the things that were there and unless you had experienced what it would be like to be a high priest for the nation of Israel. In fact, in, in uh, Charles' class this morning, he talked about the various high priests that came on the scene, and you found out that that priesthood, though it should have been pure and of the bloodline of Aaron, who was the brother of Moses, it became something that had been watered down and, and taken advantage and became really a position that was vied for in, in terms of, of just power itself. It was wrong, but that's what they did. With a high priest, like I said, came a lot of authority, came a lot of, of power, and came a lot of privilege and responsibility. For instance, only the high priest could enter into the Holy of Holies to offer up sacrifices, and then only on the Day of Atonement. That to us is unfamiliar. If you could imagine the tabernacle in the wilderness or the temple in Jerusalem, and there you see the temple court itself, and you'd have the outside, outer part of the court. And then you would pass from the outer court into the inner court, which is called the holy place. Uh, there you would find the, the candlesticks, and you would find the table of bread, uh, those kinds of the altar. Then there would be a large curtain that would go across, separating the holy place from the holy of holies. And then the holy of holies is where the mercy seat was, where the cherubim uh, met wings together, the mercy seat, or where God's presence was there. And the high priest was privileged and had the responsibility of going inside the holy of holies, the only man that could do so called by God and appointed by God to do so, he could go inside the Holy of Holies and there he would make sacrifice for the people. He was the representative of the people. Only he could do that. No other person could do that. Begin with the calling of Aaron, like I said, the brother of Moses, and then his sons, and then their blood lineage that came out of the tribe of Levi. These were the high priests. No other person could be that person and yet the high priest is there and so when these readers are reading, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, their picture of what a high priest was, was incredible to them. To them, they looked upon the high priest as the one who was the only hope of salvation, since he's the only one who could bring the sacrifice before God. His sole function as a priest then was to be the umpire or the interceder that would intercede on behalf of the people. They needed that person as a part of the Judaistic system. But there's a problem. And the problem is, is not only is he offering sacrifices for the people, he'll also have to offer sacrifices for himself because he is inadequate. 
he's no less a sinner than all the rest of Israel. He has a major problem. So with that in mind, open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 5. We'll be bouncing between Hebrews chapter 5 and, and 7 and then back to 4 and then 2 and some other places. But turn to Hebrews chapter 5, if you would, please. Let's read verses 1 down through 4. And in this section of Scripture, you'll see uh, three qualifications for what it meant to be a, a high priest. For every high priest taken from among men is appointed on behalf of men and things pertaining to God in order to offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and misguided since he himself is also beset with weaknesses. And because it is that uh, it is, he is obligated to offer up sacrifices for sins for the people, so also for himself. And no one takes the honor to himself, but receives it when he is called by God, even as Aaron was. So in that section of scripture there, you will see several qualifications, three in particular. The first one in verses 1 through 2 says that he must represent the people before God. He's the only person that can, can do that. So he is a representative that is chosen by God. He must offer the sacrifices uh, for the people to God, but not just uh, for them, but also for himself. So he is beset with weaknesses as uh, we are. And lastly, he is appointed by God. He doesn't run for election. It's not a power move. He doesn't run for election. The nation itself does not elect them to the position of a high priest. God appoints him as a high priest, and he's very specific as to who his high priest would be. So the high priest, his function then, is a spiritual umpire for the people of Israel. Notice this statement that I put up here for you to think about. He had the discerning eye who could judge between right and wrong and answer to God on the people's behalf. An umpire behind the plate, a baseball umpire, he has to have a good eye for balls and strikes, okay? He, uh, he is the one that oversees the rules of the ball game. That's the high priest. The high priest has the responsibility of calling balls and strikes, to be accurate when it came down to people living according to the law of Moses, that God strictly expected of the people that they were to live according to all 613 laws that had been delivered to them on Mount Sinai. The high priest was the one who stood as the authority, and he stood as the one who was to be the example of what that lifestyle should look like along with all the priests of, of Levi. So you can see that he stands in this incredible uh, position. So being a high priest was, was serious business. It had strict rules. And the rules were so strict that if those rules were violated by the people, certainly by the high priest or the priests themselves, it could actually mean death for them. They could lose their lives if they didn't do things uh, correctly. An example of that would be Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, who offer up a strange fire to God. It's called a strange fire because it's not that it was maybe strange looking. It was strange in that it was not authorized by God to be used as a fire. And the result of that violation is, is that they would be burned up by it. They would be consumed by it and they would die because of that transgression. It was so strict that if you were to go over to Exodus, the 28th chapter, the whole of Exodus 28 is delegated 
to, or dedicated to the, the dress or to the aware of what the priestly guard was all about. The whole chapter. And in verse 43, it says that when a priest did not dress appropriately, according to all God had said for him to dress like, he was to die. I mean, that's how serious it was. Not just in his duties as the high priest, but also even to the way he dressed. Which probably says something about that God really is one who is interested in dress, as in concerned about how we dress, because he deserves honor in everything from us, from the things that we say, the things that we think about, the things that we do, even by the way we dress. And that's why we should always dress in a very upright kind of, of manner. So as a sacred priesthood, it was important. But what the writer of Hebrews is going to tell us is that it was not a permanent thing that it would only last until the final high priest would come on the scene. So it wasn't something that would stay there. And it's talked about numerous, in numerous areas where, for instance, if you were to go back to, say, uh, uh, Hebrews, the second chapter and verse, uh, verse 17, listen to what it, or, or, I'm sorry, the, yeah, Hebrews, the uh, second chapter and verse 17 Therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Look at chapter 4 and verse 14. Since we then have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast that confession. Look at chapter 7 and verse 24. But he, on the other hand, because he abides forever, holds his priesthood permanently. The others could not uh, do that. The former priest in verse 23 said that, you know, they, they died. They could, you know, their priest had only lived as long as they were alive. But as human beings, they would die. Different from Jesus. Jesus would die on the cross. He would be elevated to the right hand of the throne of God. But his priesthood would be one that was permanently held by him. So Jesus, the great high priest. <clears throat> what all is involved when you talk about that? Well, look at Hebrews, the fifth chapter now. Notice what he says in verses 5 through 10. So also Christ did not glorify himself so as to become a high priest, but he who said to him, Thou art my son, today I have begotten thee, just as he says also in another passage, Thou art a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, when he offered up both prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death and who hearing because of his piety, although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. And having been made perfect, he became all to obey him, the source of eternal salvation, being designated by God as a high priest, according to the order of Melchizedek. Now, I wish we had time to talk about Melchizedek a little bit more here. But nevertheless, he's talking about a permanent priesthood that would come on the scene. So Jesus is not one among many priests. He is the final great high priest, and his priesthood is that which is permanent. It will go on forever. He did not just make sacrifices for the people. He was the sacrifice for the people. He was the one who would give his life. Look at verse 26 and 27 of Hebrews, the seventh chapter. For it was fitting that we should have a, such a high priest, speaking of Jesus, holy, 
innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens, who does not need daily, like those high priests, to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people, because he did once and for all when he offered up himself. So Jesus offered up himself as the perfect sacrifice. And if you remember several weeks back, I talked about John, the first chapter in verse 29, when John the Baptist sees Jesus coming and he points the people to him, says, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus would be the lamb or the sacrifice, the final sacrifice and the great sacrifice. So he doesn't make sacrifices for himself. He sacrifices himself for who? For the uh, people. He's not self-appointed. God appointed him as the great high priest. He doesn't come from the lineage of a man. He comes by appointment by divinity. <clears throat> he wasn't a distant, cold uh, high priest. He was a man like, uh, like us who offered up prayers and, and sacrifice. He was one who suffered in all things as we have suffered. He's, he's been tested in all things as we have been uh, tested. And he is truly the one who represents God. First Timothy, the second chapter in verse five says, for there is one mediator between God and man, the man, Jesus Christ. What's a mediator? It's a goal between. It's one who represents parties. So Jesus is the perfect mediator. Why? Because he's fully God. Therefore, he represents God. He's fully man. So he represents man. He's the God man. So he becomes the perfect arbiter that Job wanted so badly that we long for so much that intercedes on our behalf. That's what makes him this great high priest, not just a high priest, but a great high priest because of all that he has done. Okay, so let me talk to you for just a few moments now about the blessings of having a high priest, because what does it matter about Old Testament high priests in the past? Or what we even talk about historically about high priests today what about Jesus being our high priest? And what are the blessings that come our way because of this fact? Well, look at Hebrews, the fourth chapter, once again. Notice verses 14 through 16 and focus in on who this high priest is. Since then, it says we have a high priest who have passed through the heavens. Uh, Jesus, the son of God. Listen to what he says. Let us hold fast our confessions. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we have, and yet he says, without sin. Let us therefore draw near with confidence to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and, and help and find grace and help in the time of, of need. I mean, if you just take that section alone and just think about it, it's an incredible a blessing in the promises that are made within those pages. For instance, Jesus is seated at the right hand of the throne of God, interceding for us. Remember what he says, seeing that he has passed through the heavens, okay, seated at the right hand of the throne of God. I gave you a number of passages of scripture that you can jot down either in your mind or on your notes. But all those passages talk about the fact that Jesus Christ did his work, finished his work as the sacrificed uh, lamb on the cross, resurrected from the grave, ascended into heaven, and then says, and now he's seated at the right hand of the throne of God. What does that mean? Well, remember I said to you that the high priest of Judaism, he was allowed to go into the Holy of Holies one time a year. Even then, they tied a rope around his waist in case he did something in there and was struck dead. They had to drag him out somehow. 
Because no one could go in there to retrieve him. He could do it once a year. This passage says, verse 40 says, he has passed through the heavens into the holy of holy of holies, if you will, to heaven itself. And now is seated down right next to God at, to his right hand. What does that mean? It means it's a place of authority. Remember Jesus said these words over in Matthew, the 28th chapter and verse 18. He says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. He has authority to call balls and strikes without question. And he's perfect in every way. And it says that he intercedes for us. So that word there means to go on behalf of another. There are other passages that talk about this. 1 John chapter 2 and verse 1 says, My little children, do not sin, but if you do, verse 2, you have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one, and he is a propitiation for our sins, but not for ours only, but for the whole world. That word advocate comes from the word parakalit, para, which means alongside, kala, which means to call, he's called alongside us. It, the best way to, I guess, to make the analogy would be like a, It'd be like a, a court system where you're standing before a judge and your lawyer is your advocate standing beside you. You know, in a, in a regular court of law, uh, defendants or anyone else, are, they're not allowed just to talk to the judge. You talk to the judge through your lawyer, and if you start to blurt something out during the trial, the judge will stop you. And will remind you that you have an advocate. You have a person who speaks on your behalf. And in certain cases, he will give you the privilege of speaking to the court. But other than that, you always go through your lawyer. That's at least what I've observed in watching the various cases. Well, Jesus stands alongside us, and he intercedes on our behalf. Now, that's not a perfect analogy, okay? But it's something for you to think about. Secondly, this, Jesus is seated at God's right hand, and he offers up both sympathy and grace. Listen, he says, we do not have a high priest that cannot sympathize with us, but one who has been tempted in all things as we have, yet without sin. So he's able to understand what it's like to be a human being. The word sympathy means to suffer with. What that means is that Jesus suffered the same kinds of things. He was tempted with the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. If you begin just with his ministry, as he goes into the wilderness for 40 days, Satan comes and tempts him. He tempts him with the, in those three areas. But he didn't end there. He was tempted throughout his life. Uh, he has been tested just as we have been tested. He was beset with weaknesses just as we are beset with weaknesses. When I say weakness, I'm not talking about the weaknesses of sin. I'm talking about the weakness of being a human. When we're tired, we need sleep. So did Jesus. When we're hungry, we need to eat. So did uh, Jesus. When we, when we hit our finger with a, a hammer, we scream out, so did Jesus. He has all the weaknesses. So he's able to understand what the frailty of being a human being is about. He knows what it's like to be tempted, and he knows about suffering. He knows what it's like to suffer. I'm saying this to you because we don't have a high priest that is detached from us, even though he is seated at the right hand of God. He gets us. He understands us. He understands what we're going through and, and how we are living our lives. He's one that not only offers sympathy, but he offers grace. Grace, that which is given to us that we have not deserved. 
or that we have not earned. And so it's called the throne of God's grace. That's what that throne is about. It's not called the throne of truth or justice or the American way. It's the throne of grace where he freely offers it to you and to me. And so he is not like this judge who stands up on, uh, at the, the dais from his throne and looks down at you bunch of, of underlings that come with your humiliating sins, confessing your sins before him. That's not what he is about. He is one who understands us. And he's one who understands that we need grace. And so he allows us to come to him as we stumble over our sins and confessing to him that we have fallen short. So it's a throne that is sympathetic, a forgiving throne of grace. And I just think we need to remember that. Uh, notice also that he says that we're encouraged to draw near to the throne, not from a distance. Or through another man, it says that we can draw near to the throne of grace where we'll receive mercy and help and grace in the time of, of need. And so we can come without groveling. And if you're like me, like me, sometimes you don't have confidence. Sometimes you almost feel like you have to come groveling before the throne of grace because you've blown it so many times. And some of those times are the things that you've done hundreds of times. And you're constantly coming before him with the same stuff. And so maybe you have felt shut off from God because of your sins, because you think to yourself, self, I've come before his throne so much with this, I can't go anymore. I just can't go anymore. He's not able to forgive seven times 70 or seven times a thousand. He just can't do that. Why is that? Because I wouldn't do that. I would not do that for a person that sinned against me, but God can. And that's why this passage is so important to you as a Christian, that you have a great high priest who asks you, calls you to come to him and to share your life with him. So at the throne of grace, we find mercy and not judgment. Think about that song that we sang last week, but we've been learning for a month. How can it be? And just listen to the lyrics. I am guilty, ashamed of what I've done, of what I've become. These th hands are dirty. I dare not lift them up to the Holy One. You ever feel like your hands are dirty? You ever feel like your mind is dirty? You ever feel like what you have done is dirty and it's humiliating? It's abasing? And here you are. I've been hiding, afraid to let you down. Inside, I doubt that you could still love me, but in your eyes, there's only grace now. Though I fell, you make me new. From this death, I will rise with you. Oh, the grace reaching out for me. How can it be? And those bases, you know, all along the bases, you know, we're singing, you know, we're singing the words, it is well, it is well with my soul. Well, listen, at first blush, you look at those words and you think, man, those are just really simple things there. Those are just simple things that we're just setting the base for the tenor of the song. But those words are packed with meaning. Why is it well with my soul? Because you plead my cause. You right my wrongs. You break my chains. You've overcome. You gave your life to give me mine. You say that I am free. How can it be? Well, I can tell you how it can be. Because of his death on the cross. Because of his grace that he has offered to us and the mercy that he has offered to us. And he almost begs us to draw near 
to him. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of, of God. Let us go there with this confession and this confidence knowing that he understands us, that he gets us, and that we'll find grace and mercy in the time of need. <clears throat> I've heard people, and I've even read various articles, sometimes chapters in books, where it talks about, you know, when Jesus died on the cross and then resurrected from the grave and then ascended into heaven and set himself down at the right hand of God, he's done. He was finished. But that's just certainly simply not true. He is not finished. Listen, we need a high priest that doesn't just work, you know, five days a week from nine to five. We need a high priest that is ever present, an ever present reality that works 24 7, 365 days a, a, a year that cares about us. His work did not finish on the cross. He ever lives to intercede on our behalf. He stands ready to hear our plea, our, our petitions, our, our pain. His ear is, is eager. His heart, it's sympathetic. His hands are extended as an invitation. Jesus said, come to me, ye who are weak and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take your yoke upon me and, and, and follow me. For I'm meek and lowly in heart, but you will find rest for your souls. Listen, that is something that, I mean, that's incredible. That invitation that the God of heaven gives to us. Listen, there's nothing more important than knowing Jesus. The only thing that would be equally as important as knowing Jesus is that you know him as the great high priest. So that's the question for you this morning. And that is, do you know Jesus as your great high priest? The one who has sacrificed all for you, who sits at the right hand of the throne of God as your intercessor. That's what it means to have a great high priest. So your response is yours as you consider your relationship with Jesus Christ. If you need to come forward, why don't you do so at this time while together we stand and sing and give you opportunity.